0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled A Call to Action for Primary Care Professionals, Your Role in Saving the Eyesight of Patients with Diabetes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FZP860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome, everybody. I'm Dr. Mark Stoller. I'm joined with two colleagues, Dr. Vivian Fonseca, and Dr. Andrew Mosvigy. what to welcome you both to today's program. So, first challenge question. On average, approximately what percentage of U.S. adults with diagnosed diabetes receive an annual dilated eye exam? 95 percent, 75 percent, 55 percent, 35 percent, or I'm not sure. So, the correct answer to that question is about 55 percent. I think the challenging thing here to note is that It hasn't changed over time. Even with the expansion of Medicaid and more accessibility and availability, we're still not getting our patients in increased numbers for their annual dilated eye exam. In 2018, the prevalence of diabetes among adults in the United States was about 27 million patients, and that number grows exponentially every year. Uh, Globally, 630 million people are expected to have diabetes in another 25 years. Traditionally, retinopathy develops 10 to 15 years after the onset of diabetes, but remember that for type 2 diabetics, onset is not when you diagnose it, and so you have to remember that diabetes may have been present for an extended period of time before it's finally detected. And again, with the increasing prevalence of diabetes, more and more people are at risk for retinopathy, and it's going to require greater commitment on our part to identify and treat it. Certainly patients or people with diabetes are at high rates for vision-threatening eye disease. Again, if you look on the two left panels, cataracts and glaucoma are present even in patients who have relatively short-duration disease, less than 10 years. And so it's important in type 2 diabetics especially to be screening annually regardless of their stage of disease or duration of disease. For diabetic proliferative retinopathy, you can see that duration of disease has a huge impact, and certainly every patient greater than 10 years must, must, must be going for annual retinal exams. Corneal diseases are also more common among individuals with diabetes as well, and so good eye care is essential. So, Andrew, I'm going to turn
1: the program over to you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that uh, background, and today I'm going to talk to you about opening your patient's eyes to the need for diabetic retinopathy, that's DR, and diabetic macular edema screening. Symptoms alone are poor indicators of diabetic retinopathy. If we were just to ask our patients who actually harbor diabetic retinopathy what type of symptoms they're having, they may say none. Or they may say that as their blood sugar fluctuates, they also notice changes in their vision. As the diabetic retinopathy worsens to the proliferative stage, they may develop acute onset of flashes of light or floaters. If they develop diabetic macular edema involving the center part of their macula, they may have decreased vision, blurred vision, or a frank visual field loss. And then the end stage can lead to irreversible blindness. Now, there's lots of different governing bodies, the like the American Optometric Association for Optometrists, American Academy of Ophthalmology, American Diabetes Association, that have different recommendations for screening. And they all have many things in common. And we're not going to go into all of the details, but suffice to say that regular Eye exams, usually annually, are recommended for persons with diabetes to make sure that no amount of diabetic retinopathy is present. And if it is present, then we change the frequency of those examinations. We do so also for patients who are diabetic but then develop, uh, or, or I'm sorry, are diabetic and become pregnant. We follow those patients more frequently as well. So, for the American Academy of Ophthalmology, uh, for type 1 patients, we try to get an exam within the first five years of diagnosis, since it's sort of an acute onset of diagnosis. For type 2 patients, as was mentioned by Dr. Stolar, they are likely walking around for a while before they uh, with diabetes, before they're actually diagnosed. So we make the initial screening exam roughly at the time of diagnosis, and then annually thereafter, according to the American Academy of Ophthalmology. There's also International uh, Council of Ophthalmology, which has similar guidelines as to the Aforementioned. Now, the ADA, Uh, differs slightly from the um, vision uh, societies, which says if no diabetic retinopathy is present, you can go every one to two years. But in general, we still stress annual exams. It's easier for the patients to remember that and um, gets them into the habit of coming in regularly. And we already mentioned about pregnancy. So what's the rationale to improve the current screening? Well, as Dr. Stoller mentioned, we have, you know, 50% 45 50% of patients who are not coming in regularly. And this is not a very arcane problem. This is a super common problem, uh, which affects not just our country, but the whole world. So we really need to get these patients in more frequently so that we can try to intervene if we need to, uh, to preserve and improve vision for those who are already affected by diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. So let's hear from one of our patients, happens to be my patient, uh, from someone with diabetes and who is struggling with diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. So why don't we go ahead and cue her story uh, about her diagnosis.
2: My name is Zeynep Fikri. My current age is 30 years old. Um, I'm a professional singer and I'm on my second master's at USC in opera. Um, I was diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy at 28 years old or turning 28 years old in in 2019. I think both my optometrist and I noticed different things around the same time. Um, And as far as anyone following up with me, it it was just the same optometrist. But I see my endocrinologist uh, every three months up until recently, which has now changed to every four months. Um, I can speak to my endocrinologist very openly about my diabetic retinopathy um, with whatever concern I have but it's mostly him asking me how my vision is doing and I report accordingly the only form of communication is through me I am that bridge of communication so um, if my endocrinologist needs me to ask my ophthalmologist something then I do so and vice versa very
0: articulate woman. Uh, Vivian, part of her struggle sound like between primary care and endocrine that there wasn't really an appreciation that she could even be at risk. What's your take on how the team could be better assembled around a patient like her whose
3: circumstance is a bit unique? I I think we don't emphasize these screenings to our patients you know we, we all send our patients for diabetes education where they get overwhelmed with you know how you take your pills how do you take your injections these are the blood tests this is how you interpret it and it's all over within half an hour one hour and little things like you got to have your eye screening done it's very important and this is macular edema which isn't explained well to them uh, so gets missed
0: does it matter if she was a type one or a type two in terms of the approach?
3: Uh, only in terms of when the problem occurs. So type one, as Andrew mentioned, you, you, dif- you know when it started, and so five years—it takes about five years to get uh, retinopathy from being almost certainly normal. In type 2, it's a little different. Sometimes you don't know you've had it for a long time. But actually, in pre-diabetes, we know this from the Diabetes Prevention Program, about 5 to 8% of people had some retinopathy before a diagnosis of, of diabetes. Now, it may be they were getting little spikes of high glucose with oxidative stress and things like that, causing some minor changes in the eye. It's not severe, but it's there. And it tells you that something is going on for a long time, And so we recommend that people have it done uh, at the
0: time of diagnosis. Does the
3: rapidity of her course, Andrew,
0: uh, mean anything to you? Is there something about how rapidly it's occurred in this young woman? Is this something we really need to be concerned
1: about, both in her and in other young patients? Well, it shows us that by the time that she first uh, got to me, uh, her retinopathy was already fairly advanced, which means that presumably her systemic control was not fantastic at that point. And then when they start, uh, when persons with diabetes start uh, really feeling this end organ damage, that's when a lot of them make a decision to really get serious about their overall health, including the eye health. And so she's been a great patient ever since, and, you know, we're seeing her pretty frequently nowadays. Great.
3: There's another factor there, that very rapid control of type 1 diabetes particularly is known to be associated with the worsening of retinopathy. So sometimes people neglect themselves for many years or they fall through the cracks in our healthcare system. Then they get into good insurance and get seen and get well controlled. That happens too rapidly. And it's classically seen also during pregnancy where Mm -hmm. the women are very motivated now to get good good control and there you get the retinopathy progressing. so.
0: So let's do another challenge question. Ready? Which of the following methods is preferred for diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular edema screening by primary care health providers? The Amsler grid, the Snellen eye chart, direct, ophthalmop- direct ophthalmoscopy by the healthcare care provider, or a comprehensive exam with a qualified eye care professional, or not sure?
1: All right. So there's a lot of different uh, professionals who participate in the diabetic retinopathy diabetic macular edema eye care continuum. I'm a retina specialist, so that means I'm an ophthalmologist who diagnose and treat uh, patients with these conditions. And we often will do actual surgery on patients who have really advanced diabetic retinopathy. But then we have our, our partners in optometry who diagnose eye diseases, including these as well. And they also prescribe glasses and contact lenses and the like. Opticians help with glasses. We have our colleagues on the endocrinology side, diabetes specialists, uh, primary care doctors. Um, And then we have our colleague or other subspecialty colleagues in ophthalmology, pediatric ophthalmology, cataract surgeons, and glaucoma surgeons. Uh, So a lot of different people participating in these roles. So when they come to see an eye care provider, they're going to generally have a dilated Slit lamp exam and indirect ophthalm, ophthalmoscopy exam where we put what looks like a coal miner's hat on, take a look at your eye like you see in this picture. We may perform an OCT test. That's optical coherence tomography provides a cross sectional analysis of the macula, and very quickly, will tell us whether you have diabetic macular edema present, and if so, does it involve the center of the macula? We call that center involving, or non-center involving, and so it's threatening the center, but not yet involving it, and that can wax and wane, and it's a driver for treatment decisions. And then occasionally, we'll also perform fluorescein angiography, which is an intravenous dye that's safe for the kidney, in patients who we suspect is harboring uh, more advanced proliferative diabetic retinopathy or we're worried about macular ischemia, and that's a very helpful dye test as well. So we classify two major dichotomies in classification. There's non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, previously known as background diabetic retinopathy, and that's mild, moderate, or severe based upon criteria. And then when you start growing abnormal blood vessels in front of the retina, and they start bleeding in front of the retina into the vitreous. We call that proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And across all of these stages, you can also have diabetic macular edema. It's where it's just swelling of the macula. And that is the number one cause of vision loss. Uh, So if you have swelling of the macula right in the middle, then you're gonna have blurry vision that doesn't go away when you try to clean your glasses. We have great treatments in the form of anti-VEGF therapy that we inject intravitreally. Um, but also can wax and wane with systemic control. Um, So I mentioned systemic control. I mentioned the anti-VEGF medications for really out-of-control diabetic retinopathy. In the periphery, we can perform panretinal laser photocoagulation. And then we often may consider a second-line therapy, intraocular corticosteroids for recalcitrant diabetic macular edema. And then if it's really out of control, diabetic retinopathy with bleeding, that's just not going away, we can remove that blood mechanically with vitreoretinal retinal surgery. So let's hear some more from our patient uh, that we just heard from, uh, navigating treatment options uh, for diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. Uh,
2: the laser really helps with my diabetic retinopathy. However, since it's a pro-inflammatory, it agitates the macular edema. And the macular edema is actually treated by the injections. Um, That being said, the battle between the medication and the injection against trying to fix the inflammation that the laser causes is astronomical. Usually about a month after I've had laser, um, my entire vision is completely shot in the in the eye that I had laser in, um, and I need about three or four plus months of injections to bring that swelling down and bring the blood down. Um, I'm actually still dealing with blood and vision loss that I had from my very first session of laser. Um, so it's it's going it's going, and I it's not. It's not ideal, but I do it for the sake of saving my vision. This is this is probably going to be the most difficult question for me to answer. Um, realistically, it feels very bleak. Realistically. Um, I do my absolute best to remain as positive as I can be regarding all situations in my life. I mean, it's a juggling act, and I'm a one-woman circus at this point. Um, but I, ha- I, I try my best to remain positive and, and really, really trust the process.
1: So not all patients with diabetic macular edema require laser. It's only those patients on the far right of the severity spectrum who have proliferative diabetic retinopathy And she's right. When you have laser for that, that can exacerbate the diabetic macular edema, and then you might need to recover with the injections. Now, you can use just injections to control that, to control both things, but then you need to keep doing the injections, whereas the laser has more of a permanent effect. So when it comes to complex decision-making, like in a case like hers... We can't just make all the decisions for the patients ourselves, and we know that there's a more sort of engaged patient when we get them to participate in so-called shared decision making, and that's really what we aim to do in patients uh, with this type of complex problem. And it also helps set their expectations. You know, I can tell them, look, I'm going to do this laser, but you might experience a setback uh, like she described and we're going to try and mitigate that setback with perhaps more frequent injections. So it's always sort of a push and pull, but you'll get better patient engagement when you involve them in the decision-making process. So we know patients with more severe diabetic macular edema, as shown here, require more office visits, more injections, uh, but then they also have a better chance for a greater magnitude of improvement. Um, So it's kind of a lot of information for a complex topic, but uh, we can see the role that the injections play and that shared decision-making is important. It's going to be so difficult to manage this woman's diabetes because she is
0: beginning to lose hope. And if she's losing hope on the vision side, she may begin to lose hope on just managing her diabetes. But the
3: future is not that that bleak, is it, Andrew? I think people are doing better today. Yeah, no. As you mentioned, uh, there's a
1: transient drop in uh, the well, worsening in severity when you get really intensive control. But that lasts about one to two years or so. And once you get past that, then if you keep up that intensive blood sugar control, then they're better off than they were had they never done the intensive control in the first place. And so I keep reminding her of that and patients uh, with a similar condition. Hang in there. So Vivian, before I turn the program over to you,
0: we're going to challenge the audience again. Uh, We've got a 67-year-old man with a seven-year history of type 2 diabetes and well-managed glycemia, blood pressure and lipids also well-controlled, coming in for his annual exam. His visual acuity on the eye chart is 20-20 with his current glasses, which is unchanged from his last visit. His retinas look normal on direct ophthalmoscopy. What's your next step? So, Vivian, let me turn the program over to you. With Thank you. Let,
3: let me take this particular patient, the 67-year-old retiree with type 2 diabetes, seven-year history of type 2 diabetes. He's got hypertension, diabetes, lipid abnormalities—the usual kind of thing that I see in my practice. Uh, taking metformin, a GLP-1 receptor uh, agonist, uh, a losartan-HCD combination, and a statin. Uh, it doesn't have much vision problems, uh, but admits that he hasn't been going for his eye exams. I mean, there's some challenges here, you know, he, he needs help with transport. Very often I have more problems with people who are working, he's retired, and they make, can't get an appointment for months, and when they get an appointment they're really busy at work and then don't go, and then they can't get the next appointment, so it's very challenging. But, you know, when you look at his chart, there's no history of retinopathy. That doesn't mean he doesn't have it. We do visual acuity in our office, but I'm not sure that that's really that good. And, uh, you know, 20-20 vision. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have retinopathy. So uh, it gets back to this issue that we were talking about, educating our patients and the lack of knowledge, contributing to suddenly the vision loss might come on and you get retinopathy. So, Increasing awareness of the need for such thing is very important, so we need to get them ready to really seek eye care. And then you also need them to, you know, sometimes there's denial about the whole pri- uh, uh, issue or not prioritizing it. I, it's the same with, you know, not going to see the dietitian. Yet they come to see me and I say, you know, what am I doing for you? You need to go and see the dietitian. Maybe you need to see your ophthalmologist as well. So it's, then it gets around to trusting the providers and of course, access to care. And that involves uh, you know, transportation, insurance, lack of uh, appropriate insurance. Some people have vision insurance that's separate from their medical insurance. And that becomes very challenging for them, multiple copays, pays uh, things like that, which they don't like. And then the, the other problem is duration of diabetes. So control is one thing. It's a little bit in our hands. We can improve control. You can't take back duration. Uh, and duration is a big driver. So what you see here is people who have... Long duration of diabetes, even if they're reasonably well controlled, start getting some retinopathy. Obviously, people who have very poor control don't need that much of duration. They start getting it, and of course, so in the equal number of years, they've got much more risk of retinopathy and even visual loss. I want to highlight a couple of other things in this uh, particular patient, uh, it, not just diabetes. There are other modified risk fact, uh, modifiable risk factors, dyslipidemia, hypertension. They, interact in some strange ways that we don't fully understand. Uh, There's a well-known association with uh, uh, severe retinopathy and dyslipidemia. However, the standard treatment for dyslipidemia, statins, doesn't do anything for retinopathy. Fortunately, it doesn't worsen it, but doesn't make it better. And I'll come back to the fibrates later on, because high triglycerides are uh, certainly a risk factor for progression. And there are... uh, there's also the question of blood pressure. so Hypotension, diabetic nephropathy is another risk factor that associated with uh, uh, retinopathy. But treating hypertension uh, in studies like the Accord, which occurred in uh, long-duration diabetes, didn't make a difference. So maybe it's many, many years of, uh, and perhaps treating hypertension well early, that really matters. But good glycemic control and some ideal optimal lip, lipid management. In, in their code study, they use a fibrate, lower rates in the intensively treated group, uh, lower rates of retinopathy than in the standard group. So maybe there's something there, and I'll come back to that issue. We need to treat our patients' risk factors aggressively for everything, not just preventing heart disease, uh, but also retinopathy and so on. Now, in order to do this, you need a multidisciplinary uh, uh, team. You know, at the center is the patient, and myself as a diabetes specialist, I'm seeing this patient, but the patient often has a primary care physician or nurse practitioner who takes care of uh, many other things. Uh, Very often, the nurses uh, in our own clinic are advocates for getting the patient scheduled for for their eye exam, and sometimes they get reminded about this by the pharmacist. They go to an optometrist because it's sort of easier to give, and they go for their glasses and sometimes they get reminded there. They might have an exam. Some go to general ophthalmologists who might pick up things that the rest of the, you know, the optometrists and the diabetes specialists may not have picked up. And then we'll call a retinal specialist like Andrew and say, this patient needs to be seen very early. So there's a wide spectrum of providers uh, with the, who are seeing these patients, interacting with them, and they all need to identify who's at greater risk, who needs to see whom, certainly who needs to see the retina specialist. And together we can, should come up with a plan for care. We need to talk about uh, various medications that they're t- taking, the potential adverse effects, interactions with other comorbid conditions, And can we do something to optimize treatment outcomes, including getting uh, uh, the patient in to be seen when they need to be seen? And, uh, you know, Andrew, I think this is from uh, something that you came up with and use in your practice. It's a way to capture metrics for improving this multidisciplinary care. You know, we tell patients, you got to do this and you got to do that. And this is your A1C and they forget. They forget that the, you made a referral to the ophthalmologist and when their appointment is scheduled for. So I like this card where you know the, maybe the patient themselves can write down their A1C and the date and their blood pressure and what medications they're taking and they show it back to their primary care physician. They 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 know when they've come to the endocrinologist, and then they can make a note of when their eye exam has been done. So when they come back, I know that this has been done and by who it's been done. And if there's some problem, patient says there's a problem, I know how I can communicate with that particular problem. So I, I like this card, and this is a downloadable uh, thing from the website from PeerView. You can download it and maybe use cards like this uh, in your practice. I. I, I wish this was used more in the EMR where this kind of flow chart uh, uh, came in. But let's go back to what I can do as a clinician looking after the patient with diabetes. I can't change their long duration of diabetes, but I can change their elevated A1C in chronic hypoglycemia. And it's the key modifiable risk factor for, for retinopathy. And we have many, many drugs now to do this. Hypertension remains a challenge, but again, you know, with uh, appropriate therapy, you can get people well-controlled, particularly RAS blockade is very good. Uh, Nephropathy is now getting a lot more attention, screening for microalbuminuria. Uh, You know, if a patient has microalbuminuria, they've got leakage of protein in the urine, they might have some leakage in the eye as well. And then we we talked about dyslipidemia. I want to raise another issue that we comes up from time to time, uh, does the glucose lowering agent matter? And uh, very often we think that maybe people treated with insulin have more retinopathy. Uh, is it the insulin? Well, we know that it's not because in type 1, some people well controlled do very well. So it's the, in type 2, it's a marker for long duration of diabetes. That's what insulin therapy is. But when thiazolidine downs came uh, uh, into clinical practice and were used a lot. they use less now, although I think they have some uses. And uh, uh, they were described as having association with macular edema, and particularly in combination with uh, insulin, just like you have edema elsewhere, you have some edema in the eye. So you need to recognize that, but fortunately it's not that common. A similar I- I- issue has come up with some of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, particularly the very powerful ones that we have today, which work very well for uh, uh, losing weight and for glycemic control. And in people with pre-existing retinopathy, there seems to be a worsening of retinopathy in some people. And in those without retinopathy, this problem doesn't occur. So I take this as an opportunity. I tell people, you're going to start on the GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, you need to have your eye examined before I write you this prescription. You haven't been for two years, and I want to make sure that you don't have retinopathy, and I know it's safe uh, for you to use this drug. Uh, fortunately, it's not all bad news. Lipid-lowering therapy, I just said statins don't make a difference, but there's a number of studies showing that phenofibrate, uh, a drug we don't use that much because it's not that effective for preventing cardiovascular disease. It mainly lowers triglyceride. And in the field study, Although there wasn't a cardiovascular benefit, there was a benefit noted for the uh, retinopathy. And there's good theoretical reason why PPAR alpha agonists like phenofibrate might actually help uh, diabetic uh, retinopathy. And as I pointed out in the ACCORD study, the intensive treatment group who had statin plus phenofibrate actually developed... Less retinopathy than those who had statin alone. So I, I think that there is something there. It's not an FDA-approved use of uh, of the fibrate drugs, but uh, if your patient also has hypotriglyceridemia, it's worth considering. What about uh, blood pressure lowering? Well, blood pressure lowering in general might not work, but now we have good data with RAS blockade. People who are RAS inhibitors have lower incidence, lower progression and maybe increase regression of retinopathy uh, if these drugs are used to control their blood pressure. Year two, this is not done prospectively in large randomized trials, these are just observations, and this is not an approved indication, but most of your patients uh, have uh, with diabetes and hypertension have an indication for RAS blockade use anyway. So it, it does matter what treatment you're using. Uh, We do need to use these glucose-lowering agents uh, and blood pressure-lowering agents to improve their blood glucose and blood pressure, but you need to see what kind of retinopathy they've got and choose the therapy accordingly, or wait till the uh, macular edema or the retinopathy is treated and the patient is stable before starting the therapy, and uh, use good blood pressure and lipid-lowering therapies. Let me take a step back and talk again about screening. You know, uh, is telemedicine good for this? fundus photography? And the answer is when you have challenges of getting scheduled, as you've seen, 50% of people not having their retina, even insured patients. When I do a clinic in a, a safety net hospital and patients don't have insurance, it's more challenging for them, even more challenging. But we've instituted Medicine in that place with uh, a fundus uh, camera and if a patient hasn't had an eye exam for a long time we just talk to the nurse who takes a photograph and that's sent to our own ophthalmologist who read it and say no retinopathy or I, not a good picture take it again or better still send the patient to me and then we can persuade the patient to, uh, to go back there. And a study done in, in the Atlanta VA demonstrated that you know they, they've Photography quality is very good. They, uh, they, uh, w- the photograph was right about 90% of the time. About 2 to 3% of photographs are not a good, not readable, and those people obviously need to be seen. But that's a very small percentage. And there's very good uh, sensitivity and specificity of this uh, methodology. So th- this is available uh, there are, you can do it within your own institution. There are a number of companies that uh, sell or lease this kind of equipment, and it's illustrated here. you could, you know, at the site of care. You take the photograph. It's uploaded to the cloud. It's read remotely by an ophthalmologist who sends the report back, and from the cloud it goes directly back into the EMR, and a letter is generated to the patient. So, you know, you're closing the loop in every possible way, uh, which the, that little card did earlier. You're doing it all electronically using modern technology. And I think this is, this is really great and, unfortunately, not used enough. Now, in primary care, if you're seeing a small number of people, you may not want to invest in a camera. but. If you got a number of primary care physicians in that building, you could put one for shared use and uh, it's reimbursable and it saves your patient a lot of trouble. Now, lots of new technologies coming. There's artificial intelligence, reading x-rays, and now there's studies showing that it can read the. photographs I, I, I think this is uh, you know sounds like science fiction but it's true and the FDA has actually uh, approved uh, uh, one particular system uh, for similar kind of use I think just what, what is a diagnosis using a ophthalmoscope or ophthalmologist using it. It's pattern recognition. You know the pattern. And I think the computer can do it in in a lot of instances. And again, very high uh, quality images, 97%. and Again, over 90% sensitivity, almost 90% specificity. So maybe this is the way we'll do things in the future so that Andrew can then focus on doing the injections and doing the laser uh, and the screening will be done automatically within the, the point of care. Uh, and uh, you know, let's hope this carries on because we need to improve our practice and get more people screened. What's the best practice today uh, for managing the referrals? I think we need to follow those guidelines that you heard about. Refer your patients. Or take the photograph and send the, the, the picture. Uh, if you notice something not going well, the patient is having floaters or decreased vision or some eye pain, uh, arrange for an early uh, urgent appointment. Maybe we should go back, uh, Mark, to going, doing uh, using the ophthalmoscope in the clinic. People don't use it often enough. I still use it and say, well, you know, I see something here on, on the macula. This patient needs to be seen urgently. I can call somebody like Andrew and say, you know, your waiting list is three months, but could you fit this patient in next week? And I think that's, that's possible.
1: No, it's, those are all great points, uh, definitely, and especially if you find diabetic retinopathy. Yeah. It's less helpful if you look in and don't see it because you're only seeing one part of the retina. But if you actually do see it.
3: So, what you're suggesting is that even if I can recognize (laughs) it, then the patient must have something wrong. (laughs) That'll be something
1: going on.
0: (laughs) I think one other important point for uh, the primary care providers in our audience is that a referral made is not a referral completed. That's right. And so it's essential as part of the best practice for those of you who are on Epic, for example, you have to document that it was done because referral uptake doesn't equate to visit.
3: And there's a, there are other issues. If the patient goes outside the system, we don't know if they've gone or not.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So another challenge question. 59-year-old woman with a nine-year history of well-managed type 2 diabetes reports an annoying but painless blob moving around in her left eye and partially obscuring her vision. She also mentions seeing flashes of light in her left eye. What's your next step? Would you tell her that flashes and floaters are a normal part of aging? Would you make a non-urgent referral to an ophthalmologist or a non-urgent referral to a retina specialist? Or would you make an urgent referral to an ophthalmologist or an urgent referral to a retina
1: specialist? What's your best answer? I'll give it back to you, Monica. Okay, so we're going to use her case as a talking point. So this is a 59-year-old accountant with type 2 diabetes, nine-year history, well-managed, using oral agents. And, but again, she notices this blob moving around in her vision, partly obscuring her vision, and also flashes of light when walking around the neighborhood. So, you know, this is more suggestive of a more severe diabetic retinopathy when you have sudden onset of v- floaters in the vision and flashes of light suggestive of traction on the retina from some um, abnormal blood vessels pulling and bleeding in front of the retina. And that can cause all of the symptoms that we list here. So when we see these types of symptoms in a patient with these uh, with this uh, background, uh, then we want to arrange for an ophthalmologist to see this patient urgently. It doesn't necessarily have to be a retina specialist. It could just be an ophthalmologist uh, to uh, look in and make sure that there is not a more severe stage of diabetic retinopathy and or traction retinal detachment present. Uh, So access to eye care specialists in the United States diminishes with distance from major cities, not surprisingly. Uh, And that's because of the types of eye care providers that are available in scarce supply. Uh, While there are approximately 18,000 ophthalmologists in the United States, there's only 2,000 dedicated retina specialists and when you look at where those are located on that map on the right, they tend to be clustered around the major metropolitan areas. Now, optometrists are in much uh, more plentiful supply, and you can see that they kind of saturate most of the United States in a similar pattern to general ophthalmologists, but there's just more of them. And so they often are the sort of on the first uh, uh uh, line of defense for the initial change in vision. And so they can look in and see what's, they, uh, what's going on and then refer them either to a general ophthalmologist or a retina specialist as needed. Now, unfortunately, most emergency departments and hospitals are not appropriately staffed to handle all sorts of eye care emergencies or urgent uh, problems like the ones we've described with Monica. So it may be not the best use of the patient's time to go straight to an emergency department whenever there's a change in vision in a, in a patient with diabetes. So you're better off trying to directly connect that patient either to an optometrist, general ophthalmologist, or retina specialist, uh, since most of them are not working out of hospitals or emergency rooms. So our last
0: challenge question, which of the following roles with respect to diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular edema diagnosis and treatment is the most appropriate for a primary care clinician? Would you perform a comprehensive eye exam yourself? Would you ensure timely and appropriate referrals to eye care professionals? Would you recommend or prescribe treatment for diabetic retinopathy? Or would you educate patients about the risks and benefits of different treatment options? What's your best answer? So to kind of wrap up today's program, key takeaways, and so I'm going to ask each of you, what's your key takeaway for the people in the audience today about advising their patients about diabetes and diabetic eye disease? Vivian?
3: It's all about screening. Make sure they screen one way or the other, and emphasize the importance to the patient, educate them why this is important, and make sure it gets done.
1: Important is the key word, Andrew. Yeah, I I would echo that and also say, and don't just come once, <laughs> you know, keep coming. And so I tell patients who are fearful of going blind from diabetes that the patients that I see that go blind from diabetes are two types. One, poor control, not doing a great job of trying to keep their blood sugar, blood pressure, diet, exercise under control, number one. And then number two, patients that disappear from the eye clinic. Uh, they don't keep coming back. And so if you keep coming back, you might develop some problems, but usually they're manageable ones that we can get out in front of before they become a bigger problem that may not be manageable. Uh, so if you only come at the very end when it's like really out of control, then you're at a greater risk for... Uh, severe irreversible loss of vision. Early, early, early.
0: All right, gentlemen, it's time for some questions from the audience. There's some excellent questions. I want to thank both of you for excellent presentations. Um, We will start with you in terms of, is it possible to reverse macular degeneration? And a kind of corollary question, is retinopathy itself curable?
1: So diabetic retinopathy, the findings of diabetic retinopathy often can uh, become more severe with time, as we talked about. But they can also go in the opposite direction. Uh, we've seen patients who've gotten on a really good regimen for a long period of time and watch the diabetic retinopathy melt away, so such that we no longer can see it just through clinical examination. We usually can still see it through very uh, high scrutiny of the retina with some of our good technology, but from a pragmatic perspective, the patient can be free of retinopathy with really good control. Now, the opposite is also true. Despite a lifetime of good control you, and doing all the right things, you can still have some retinopathy present. Um, so it's not always the case that you, know, you will be <laughs> appropriately rewarded, but generally you will be, um, not necessarily with no retinopathy but with less than there would have been if it wasn't as good. I another question you'd mentioned about the acute
0: lowering of blood glucose or at least normalizing it. What's our best strategy and are any medications better than others in trying to reduce the risk of a flare of retinopathy as we begin to bring our patients under control? Can't just go, well, I'm not gonna control you tightly now, we have to do it, but uh, is there any nuances we can bring?
3: Well, that's a, that's a very tough question because there is no treat. I wish there was, instead of the injection, the, an oral medication that we could prescribe to slow that uh, uh, onset and pro- rapid progression down, but it doesn't exist. Theoretically, phenofibrate might help, but... It's not approved for that indication. It's one more pill. And the data's not really clear. We, what we need is a randomized trial in retinopathy, not data from other cardiovascular trials, if you see what I mean. So this question is for both of you. And this
0: is a, something that a lot of patients think about. It's like, am I at risk for certain complications? Suppose a patient is an A1C at 7. They're at Target. They've always been at 7. What's their risk for diabetic eye disease?
1: Well... Uh, you mean just being at
0: seven and that's all you know, the information? Yeah. You know, their lifetime, they've always been under control. You know, They've always been a, an easy-to-control diabetic, seven, but they're worried about, will I still have complications because my
1: mother lost her vision with diabetes. Well, fortunately, as we discuss, diabetic retinopathy is a spectrum of severity. So if you just take it from a binary, will she or he or she develop retinopathy – if we follow that patient long enough, there probably will be some evidence of diabetic retinopathy after like 20 years of, of diagnosis. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the patient is going to notice it. We may notice it when we examine the patient, but it really may be of very little consequence to the patient. Um, so, in terms of vision-threatening complications of diabetic retinopathy, as long as they stay at goal, uh, there's a good chance that they'll avoid those.
3: Is there any, any coming? It's a very complex question because there's a wide spectrum of how people respond to different blood levels of glucose, or A1c. They're the so-called fast glycators and slower glycators, or people who get more complications. And there are people who, I, I, I've seen a few who have no complications in A1c's of 9, 10, 11 for years and years and you know they're very lucky in a way but there must be some genetic component to how the body responds to an abnormality whereas some people with Relatively minor abnormalities get it more aggressively. And we, it's something we just don't understand. So maybe the,
0: the best thing to tell that patient is if you have microalbuminuria or you have evidence of neuropathy with your excellent control, more aggressive eye screening is needed. Abso- absolutely. And, and certainly
3: microalbuminuria screening is, is another uh, pointer towards that.
0: Is there such a thing as a family history of retinopathy risk, or is it just sort of general diabetes complications of a patient? Gen, general
3: diabetes complications, and we can't change family history. So, but we can change glycemic control. Mm-hmm. So you can't say, well, you know, nobody in my family's had this, but I can stay at nine percent. Uh, I think it, your chances are much lower at seven percent or lower.
0: We have a lot of questions about managing symptoms after VEGF injection, managing inflammation treatment schedule, what happens if a patient's treatment is interrupted. Can you comment on that? Sure. So, you
1: know, just the concept of having an injection in one's eyes doesn't sound like an attractive way to spend an afternoon for most patients. Um, But I will say that the bark is worse than the bite. Uh, So, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, educating the patient about what to expect the first time they receive an injection. And there's a lot of ways to manage those expectations. Number one, by telling them that we're going to numb the eye. Number two, that that numbing is going to wear off at some point uh, after the injection is completed. And that they may then have some foreign body sensation, some chemical irritation uh, uh, symptoms. They might have a subconjunctival hemorrhage on their eye, not to be alarmed by that, but to expect that that might happen when a needle penetrates your eye. may not happen every time, but it happens a lot. And then uh, simple things like uh, artificial tears to help lubricate the eye, putting them in a the refrigerator can help uh, lessen some of the bite of the uh, irritation afterwards cool compresses and the like. Uh, but then also that's a very tiny needle. Typically use a 30 or a 32 gauge needle, uh, when we penetrate the wall of the eye. And th- it's really, uh, something that doesn't bother most patients. The injection itself, they're, they're often surprised to hear that we're actually done with the procedure. When I tell them that we're done, they're like, Oh, that's it. Don't you have to do more? Uh, Oh, that wasn't that bad. And so, they feel a lot better when that's done, but it is a little bit irritating afterwards, and we can occasionally use topical, non-steroidal, anti-inflammatory drops to help with the irritation as well in recalcitrant cases, but usually not necessary.
0: Um, gentlemen, is there any data on just healthier living and impact on retinopathy, weight loss, exercise, just to, in addition to tight controls? Is there any evidence that you know of?
3: Well, indirectly, you will be improving your lipids and your blood pressure and your glucose. So... It is not a direct benefit, but indirectly, I'm sure you'll have some uh, better health outcomes.
0: Um, you didn't touch upon what happens if patients miss their injections. Is there a, a, a therapeutic penalty if it's missed? Do they lose
1: ground? Um, temporarily, they can lose ground that we typically can make up if they only miss, let's say, one cycle of treatment. Um, but if they missed a whole series, let's say six months or longer, uh, studies have shown that they often can, they they can do better by getting back on the wagon, so to speak, but their potential is not as good as it would have been if they had continued. Uh, from the-
3: Isn't there a study by early treatment as opposed to waiting till it yeah. got severe, so-called, uh, quote, uh, severe enough, unquote, uh showing that you had better outcomes would that not a principle not apply that,
1: that's also true in the beginning of therapy uh if you delay 6 months or even as long as 2 years and then start treatment for whatever reason uh you just you you get better but you don't get as better as the cohort of patients who started it promptly It makes sense because we
0: take that approach with diabetes. Well, we'll get around to it. We've got time. Well, early treatment leads to better outcomes in all aspects of of diabetes. And I think uh, that's probably the most important take home. Um, You talked about telaretinal exams, Vivian. Can they skip an eye exam if their telaretinal exam is normal?
3: If it's completely normal and uh, they've not had any prior uh, symptoms or prior retinopathy, definitely. Uh, i that's what we're doing we you know in our in in one of our hospitals,
1: and how does the eye doctor feel about that? I agree hundred percent that's the whole reason we're doing it uh to sort of save the patient the inconvenience and difficulty of getting in to see the eye care provider so if it's normal that's fine uh then but you got to do it again yeah. <laughs>
0: I might feel a little different in the African-American patient population where glaucoma is a big issue, and if they're not going for an eye exam, nobody's measuring their eye pressure. That that,
3: that is certainly a consideration that we explain to the patient.
0: So I want to, again, thank you all for attending today's program. I want to thank you, Vivian, for your participation today. Andrew, both of you, welcome to Chicago, and thank you for participating. I want to wish everyone a good evening. This CME activity has been jointly provided by Jocelyn Diabetes Center and PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FZP860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.